0: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of uh, silent prayer to give everybody an opportunity to make sure that they're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so very grateful that we can be here this evening, that we can be encouraged, strengthened by a study of your word as we come to understand who you are in a more clear way and understand your plan for humanity, your plan for us. Father, we pray that as we study these things this evening that we would be responsive to the way that God, the Holy Spirit, is applying these things in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are back in Hebrews chapter 12. And I'm going to remind you once again that I'm trying to, uh, we have a couple of problems here. Number one, a time factor. and Number two, a brain factor. And I'm going to try to remember to uh, leave about five minutes at the end of class occasionally to give people a chance to ask ask questions. And so that means that if something occurs to you or something's not clear, just make a note and then don't throw your notes away. Make a note, and then if we get to it, or if we don't get to it, then maybe we can get to it next time. Okay, so open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And what I want to start with this evening is just a review as we think our way through what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He starts off in verse 1, which really should be linked to more to chapter 11 with presenting a conclusion from all of these Old Testament examples cited in chapter 11. And he says, therefore, we also, that is in addition to all of these great Old Testament uh, examples, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the, the race that is said before us. So we have a race metaphor here, uh, an athletic contest, and the imagery here is of a contest taking place before uh, witnesses. And it, and the witnesses, uh, this is all metaphorical, just by way of illustration, that because there are those who have gone before us who have also run the same race, then we too need to do the same thing. And you set aside the sin through confession of sin. This is not clean up your life, pull yourself up by your own spiritual or moral bootstraps, clean everything out, and then run the race, because you can't do that. The picture is of a positional cleansing or forgiveness, rather experiential cleansing that occurs when we confess, uh, confess our sins. The focus is first two, occupation with Christ, looking unto Jesus, who's the pioneer, and the one who is the completer, the one who fulfills all the Old Testament examples, types, and everything come together in Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So endurance, the Greek word here, hoopomena, hupo, is the key idea that we can trace all the way through this endurance and uh, discipline, the sense of training. So Jesus goes, is able to endure the cross by focusing on the end result, which is the joy set before him. And the joy set before him is what comes when he is accepted into the presence of the Father and sits at the right hand uh, of the throne of God. And then again, we're uh, challenged to think about Jesus, for consider him or meditate on him, reflect, take time to think about what must have been involved in Jesus' endurance There at the end, everything that he faced, the physical beatings, the rejection, the hostility, the physical uh, torture involved in the whipping and everything else prior to being put on the cross, the physical pain of the cross, all of which was really nothing compared to the pain and the horror that occurred when the sins of the world were imputed to him. And he endured such hostility from sinners against himself. So think about that as an example lest you become weary and discouraged in your in your souls. For you have not resisted to bloodshed as he did, striving against sin. Then verse 5 comes it back to the key principle in 5 to 11 which deals with training, training, training. Now, I'm not going to use the chart tonight, but I did have some more of those charts we passed out last time in case anybody didn't get one of these. Anybody um, missing one of these from last time? One of these flow charts, everybody? Everybody here, there's two or three. Here you go, Doug. Terry needs one too. And that just maps out sort of the general, um, general plan, general procedure that God has for, uh, for every believer, sort of a flow chart. So that as you go forward in obedience, walking by the Spirit, then that is, God produces through endurance maturity. When we're in disobedience, living according to the flesh, then that produces human good. It has no long-term or no eternal value, no spiritual value, and ends up, uh, where we basically can destroy our lives and self-induce mi- misery and divine discipline. So, the principle of divine discipline is introduced in verse five, and, as I pointed out last time, this is not the idea we normally think of as divine discipline only in terms of the negative, which is how this is translated the chastening of the Lord that is a negative concept that we see here, but this is not the word that we find in the uh, in the original. the word that we find in the original. Is the word in the right-hand box there, pidea, which has to do with upbringing, training, instruction, and discipline in that sense—not discipline in the punishment sense. It may include that. It's the broader sense that includes both the positive for motivation to do well and and motivation for or encouragement when you have done well, plus the negative punishment when we. Uh, haven't done well, and for the most part, as I pointed out last time, for the most part, when you read through uh, Hebrews 12, chastening, are a form of that word in the um, in the New King James, I don't know what it is in the uh, in, in the American Standard or other translations, but chastening is usually the word the author chose to uh, translate paideia. Uh, Hebrews twelve, five and six, as I pointed out last time, is a quote from the Old Testament, Proverbs uh three, eleven and twelve. The same idea is found in both places that we are not to reject or despise, belittle, uh have disrespect for the discipline of God. And the idea I really like this idea that we have in the Old Testament verse, uh the word messar, indicating a, dis- a binding, that, that the purpose of discipline is to bring uh, a control into life. It's the idea of, of self, uh, self-control. self It's the idea of, of self-discipline. Uh, I remember when I was in, uh, in uh, elementary school, back in those days, some of you remember this, they had certain subjects like geography and arithmetic and language were all graded. And you got A through F in those those subjects. But on the other other side of the page, they had a variety of character traits, one of which was self-discipline. And you got a check plus or minus. And my dad had his old K-bar Marine Corps knife that he'd had with him in uh, World War II. And he said, I could have that if I'd get if uh, three, six weeks in a row, if I would get a plus in self-discipline. And um the t- uh, teachers must have been a lot harder in elementary school because I had to wait until I got into junior high and I think, I think in, in, in elementary school their view was everybody starts with a minus and has to work their way up. But in junior high everybody starts with an E and they had, and they do something overt to, to, to drop down to something, uh, something less. So I had to wait until I was, in the seventh grade before I got that K-bar knife, and now I hope I find it when I go through all my dad's stuff. I've been doing that recently just to bring some order into things. And just recently I went out to, went out to his uh, garage and pulled out his Marine Corps trunk from, uh, and it had been opened maybe twice since 1945. Found a little New Testament in there that my grandmother had given him, uh, when he went into the Marine Corps plus two or three other uh, maps that he had had and some other uh, uh, things, um, various insignia, and things like that that he had had uh, when he was in the Marine Corps. So that's been interesting to go back through that that material. But the idea there for discipline is that idea of self-management, self-control, uh, and that means that there's a restriction put on our desires. We're not just going to do anything we want to whenever we want to, and um, uh, without any any sense of um, uh, of self-control. That's the same idea that you get in uh, terms of discipline, as I pointed out last time in Proverbs. Uh, uh, the foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, when we come to Hebrews 12:5. Let me see here, 12.6, 12, 12, um, 12, the New Testament uses the term mastagao uh, for scourging, which is parallel to chastening. So you have the two sides there, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, paiduo, and scourges. So that intensifies the idea of the discipline focuses on the negative side. Masal, which means to chastise to whip, to scourge very harsh word for uh, the negative of divine punishment he scourges every son whom he receives then in verse seven, moving in I think here we 're moving into some new territory you, you have an unusual construction in the Greek in the English, for some reason, this is translated as if it 's a conditional clause, and there's no conditional clause in In the um, Greek at all, in fact it's almost a, an incomplete sentence it 's as if the writer is moving fast and he drops something out. All you have is the object the the verb is is an indicative mood verb it 's not a command to endure uh, chastening. it is an indicative mood which is merely descriptive. You endure chastening. it is simply a descriptive statement not a prescriptive statement you endure discipline or you endure training there's no if there at all and i'm not at all convinced that that's that should be supplied it is simply a basic uh, statement and it uh, very likely could be indicated uh, or translated as a um, uh, as a purpose clause that you endure, uh, that you endure training, indicating the, the reality that the believer will endure training. And again, this brings us to the uh, key word here. Hupamene is the noun. Hupameno here is the verb, same meaning, which means to endure. It's a, a compound word from the preposition hupa, meaning under. And minnow, meaning to remain. Now, when we come under a lot of adversity, the last thing we want to do is stay in that position. Most of us want to somehow try to get away from the difficulty, change the circumstances, operating on a false assumption that if we have the right circumstances, we'll be happy. But see, happiness, biblically speaking, real happiness is above the circumstances. So we are to be happy in the circumstances, whatever they are, and to remain in them because of our mental attitude and our focus. Jesus is able to maintain joy even in the midst of the suffering on the cross because his focus is on the joy set before him. He's thinking about the end game. So the idea of endurance is to remain under without caving in to sin. It is staying in the adversity without converting it to stress in the soul by trying to handle it through various um, human viewpoint techniques, which simply, uh, in the language of the, of uh, of stress management, all it does is manage stress, move it around a little bit, rather than conquer it and deal with it. So we are to we are uh, enduring discipline. And then the next phrase that is stated there is that God, the way it's translated, God deals with you as with sons. Some passages translate it, uh, God uh, treats you, God deals with you as with sons. It's an interesting word here. As far as I can find, it's the only place that this word is used in the New Testament with this particular uh, this particular uh, meaning. So let's let me back up here we endure chastening and the word chastening there again is paiduo for upbringing and training we endure training and then God deals with you as with sons so we have the Greek verb prospero, which means to bring something or to offer something and every other use that we have in the New Testament is related to Offering. We talk about Christ's offering of Himself on the cross. The very many times it was used in uh, Hebrews eight, Hebrews nine, Hebrews ten, talking about how the high priest offers a sacrifice in the in the temple, and all of those have to do with some sort of ritual offering. This is the primary word to describe that. But there is a a, a classic meaning of the word that is not found in the. In the New Testament, though it was a common use in older Greek. Now, the writer of Hebrews is known for writing more in a style similar to cl- where he's influenced by more of an older classical form of Greek. He's still writes. So i I'm bump. I don't know what causes that but move a certain way and get that electronic pop. Uh, Everybody spoke Koine Greek in the New, Test- New Testament era. They don't, nobody's walking around speaking uh, antiquated Greek. They're not speaking Attic Greek. They're not speaking um, Boeotian. They're not speaking any of these other ancient forms of Greek. But there were certain idioms that had come into the language a hundred or two or three hundred years earlier that still continued we have the same thing in English because of the um because of the endurance of the King James translation there are certain idioms that are still in use even though most people don't know what they mean because they, uh, we live in an era where people really don't know their bible anymore so they hear these sayings that come out of the bible but they don't know what what they mean they don't know it has its origin in the bible it's elizabethan english but it still has a meaning as an idiom in modern English, and the same thing was true about Greek. You had certain idioms and words that had a much older history in in the Greek language, but uh, it had meaning in the current time period of the um, of the first century so it's not as if the writer knew older forms of Greek; he just comes out of a out of a culture, a background, an education where he used a more of an upper-class aristocratic form of Greek that had more idioms in it uh, related to classical Greek. So he uses this word here not in the way he's used it previously in terms of bringing an offering, but using it here in the sense of uh, a person's uh, conduct or how someone would uh, treat another person or deal with another person. And so the 20 times that the word is used in Hebrews, this is the one time where it has the idea of God uh, dealing with somebody, treating with somebody, how God behaved toward an individual. And here we have a simple statement, not if, but simply you endure chastening, God is dealing with you as with sons. So it's it's a statement with the purpose that you endure, uh, endure chastening, endure discipline. And then a second statement, God uh, deals or God treats, God is treating you. It's a present tense, so I think the idea of ongoing action, God is treating you uh, as sons is a better way of understanding that. God is treating you as sons. And then verse 8 goes on. All right, let's get to the end of verse 7. Ask the question, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? So he's br- going to bring in the idea here of legitimacy. This is a common thing. If you are in a family, it is the role of the father to train the children. It's the role of the father to teach the children and to train them and prepare them to be adults. That's the role of parenting is to train children to be adults. Don't train children to be able to socialize and work with their peers. The goal is to teach and train children to be able to function and operate uh, with adults, and so parents should think through a training procedure for how they're going to teach their children everything from manners to the Bible to helping them uh, go beyond whatever it is they're being taught in school. If you, if you have children in 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 uh, in public school, then you need to be aware of the fact that the education standards and curricula have uh, been dumbed down so much over the last hundred years or so, that if you just rely on what is happening in the public school classroom, then your children are going to miss out on a tremendous amount. I'll never forget when, uh, when my first time I really came to understand that was when I was in um, my first church and we had taken the old quarterlies that Betty Theme and Ursula Kemp had written and I was trying to find copies of those and put those together to use in in the in our Sunday school class and uh, I called up Ursula Kemp, and we were talking she said she said robbie i don 't think you can use those today because in her experience, the children and this was about one thousand nine hundred and eighty one children at that time weren 't as well educated in the Sunday school classroom at school, at, at, I mean, at the school classroom in public school, as they had been 20 years earlier, and so it was more difficult to teach the kids in Sunday school. And that's even more true today. And this is, again, one of the big problems facing uh, evangelical churches, especially churches like ours that are uh, more focused on teaching at a uh, at a greater level, teaching the word and teaching doctrine to kids and getting them to think, because no place else in their environment does that happen. And parents have to be teaching your children to think and to think critically. They won't learn critical thinking skills from anyone else, and if they don't get it in the home, they won't get it, and they'll just become the products of the typical state-sponsored education system and come out the other end and not be very well uh, educated or be able to think very well. And so the, tip, the, the universal truth, though, has been that it is the role of the father to train the children. Too often what happens in our society is that somehow gets delegated to the mother, and that's true. Certain things can be handled and probably should be handled by the mother. But ultimately, the children need to know that the father is the one who is in charge and the father is the one who sets the standard. And even though he may not be involved in everything, he needs to be involved a lot more than is usually true in uh, in most homes. The other day I was having lunch with um, Joe Wall, who's a, I'm known for many, many years. Joe was a pastor of Spring Branch Community Church a couple of different times, and I've, I first met Joe back when uh, I guess I was going off to college. He was a uh, frequent speaker at Camp Nile, and I knew several people who went over to Spring Branch Community Church. Well, about a month or so ago, Joe and I were having lunch together up in Tomball, and we were talking. Uh, somehow we got off onto this this subject of the role of fathers, and he told me about uh, he said, "You know, I had a deacon at Spring Branch back in the 70s who would get up every morning an hour earlier than he needed to. Got up every morning at 4:30, and he would study the Bible, not just listen to a tape, not just listen to somebody teach, but study the Bible on his own for about an hour and a half. And then he would he did that every morning, and then every evening." He had a Bible class, Bible study with his three children to teach them the Bible. This was the role, he un- clearly understood the role of the parent. And I said, "Well, Joe, who was that?" And He told me who it was, and I, I, I remembered him. And one of his sons was a little bit younger than a little bit younger than me, and we had uh, counseled together, Campanile. He also had a daughter who had married a guy from Dallas who graduated from Dallas Seminary. And had gone on, and they've been on the mission field for about 35 years now. And the other, the older son, had also been involved in um, some sort of ministry for many years, and he just recently died, died of cancer. But the ministry that those children have had. And had throughout their lives is the direct result of that training from a father who understood what his mission was, that he needed to be in the word, learning the word, and then teaching it to his children, especially in terms of their own uh, context and their own situation. So the father's role is, it's the father's role to do the spiritual training in the home. It's not the mother's role. It's not the Sunday school role or prep school role, the church's role. It is the parent's role to make sure, and specifically the father's role, to make sure those children understand the word and to and to train them and prepare them for, for life. So the writer of Hebrews asks this rhetorical question, for what son is there? Whom a father does not chasten, then he answers it in verse eight. But if you are without chastening, and here he uses a um, uh, first-class condition, but he's using it in the sense of a uh, uh, of a debater's technique, or assuming it to be true for the sake of argument. If you're without chastening, assuming that you are, and he would not be saying that of the uh, of his recipients, if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers. See, that phrase contradicts the nuance there of the first phrase. He's saying, if you are without chastening, but we know you're not, I'm just assuming it's true for the sake of argument. On the other hand, he then states in the next clause, of which we've all become partakers, all of us. As believers have become participants in divine training, so he uses the word paideia again. If you are without uh, training, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. So, if there's somebody who's a believer, and you want to know, this is the only example I know of in Scripture where we have a any kind of an idea of a, um, a of a Way to qualify whether or not you're are, you're really saved. When you get into the whole debate with free grace versus lordship, the lordship uh, the lordship gospel uh, advocates say that you're not saved if you have certain kinds of sin in your life, and that's just not true. Every Christian has every Christian sins. Everybody still has a sin nature, but what this verse is saying is that the the evidence that you 're not really saved is if you don 't go through divine discipline now that 's nobody else can look at your life and say whether or not you 're going through divine discipline. Now you can look at your life and decide whether or not god 's ever disciplined you, and if you think that well, you know God never has really disciplined me for disobedience, then maybe you 're not saved that 's what the author 's saying, but I would say, looking at the audience here, those of you. Most of you I know well enough to know you've gone through a little divine discipline, so that sort of validates the fact that you are indeed a believer. And that is what this he, the writer of Hebrews is saying here, is that a someone who is a, a believer, someone who is in the family, royal family of God, will go through divine discipline. He's stating that in sort of a... Negative way, but his the force of his argument is that if you 're a believer and he 's talking to these uh, Jewish background uh, believers, probably priestly believers who were who were saved and have been going through persecution, rejection from their families and other things he 's addressing them, and he what he 's telling them is the fact that you 're going through this kind of adversity and hostility and rejection is part of god 's training program. That validates and affirms the fact that you are saved. So he's stating the stating a positive principle that you're a, if you're a believer you will go through training you're going through training therefore you are a believer and you can this is exactly what you can expect in order to affirm the reality of their situation that they haven't been forgotten by God. So he says if you are without uh, Without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. So what does he mean when he comes to uh, speak of sons? Now, verse 8 we read, but if you are, or verse 9 rather, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits, and live, And here he's raising the uh, analogy that just as in a human home and human family, we expect fathers to correct us. how much more should we expect the Father, our heavenly Father, to correct us? And then verse 10, "For they indeed, for a few days chastened us, that is, they being the human fathers, just uh, disciplined us, Paiduo. Uh, brought that discipline and training into our lives for just a few days as seemed best to them. But He, that is the Heavenly Father, for our prophet, that would be a spiritual prophet, that we may be partakers of His holiness. And that brings in the whole principle of sanctification. Hagiotes is the Greek word there for holiness. And the, the, the point that He is making is that God disciplines us so that that builds experiential Uh, sanctification into our lives, uh, experiential growth. Then he comes to a conclusion in verse 11. Now, no training seems to be joyful at the present, but painful. Why? Because you're learning to do what you don't want to naturally do and not do what you normally want to do. So it seems painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, the doctrine that underlies this whole section from verse 3 down to verse 11 is a doctrine related to uh, the doctrine of adoption and being a member of the uh, royal family of God. And so I want to look at one key, one of the key verse in relationship to that, which is Galatians 4, 6, and then uh, go into the uh, review of the doctrine of adoption. Galatians four six and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. That initial statement there, because you are sons, assumes the reality of, of regeneration in every believer. And as a mark of regeneration... Every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. At the instant of salvation, at the instant of regeneration, God uh sends the Holy Spirit into to indwell every single believer. And the cry here Abba is the um is the diminutive form of Av, which is the Hebrew word for father, the Aramaic word for father. So Abba is like going Av would be comparable to saying father, a little more formal term, but a more informal uh, word and a more, much more intimate word would be daddy. Uh, and that's equivalent to Abba. So it's emphasizing the intimacy and the closeness of the relationship between the believer and the father. And so uh, what Paul is saying here is God sends forth his spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and this is part the 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 sign of our adoption that brings us into the family of God and is the mark of our close intimate relationship with the Father who in turn is now going to be engaged in a in a training program for us. therefore, verse seven says, therefore you're no longer a slave but a son now, in this context, what Paul was talking to to the uh, to the Galatians about was the problem of the Judaizers that were coming in. These were uh, those of the uh, Jewish background who were saying, no, it's okay to believe Jesus is a Messiah, but you don't really get it all by trusting in Jesus as Messiah. If you really want to get the second blessing, you have to also obey the Torah. You have to obey all of the law. You have to be circumcised, go through all the rituals, all the feasts, everything else in order to... Uh, in order to have a real relationship with God. And so he's using adoption here to show that there is a difference between the relationship of the believer to God in the Old Testament because of the law and the believer in the New Testament. And he uses the Roman form of, uh, of adoption. The Romans had one form of adoption. The Greeks had another form of adoption. And as I'll point out, Paul relates to both of them. He uses both analogies depending on what he is trying to teach. See, this is what the, the Holy Spirit's doing uh, through the writers of Scripture is they will take various uh, things that are going on in the culture and then just bring them over as an illustration or metaphor to describe a spiritual truth. And so sometimes the emphasis in, in the New Testament is on more of a Roman form, and other times it's on the... Greek form. The Greek form of adoption focuses more on on an intimate relationship, whereas the Roman form emphasizes more uh, the legal uh, aspect of adoption. So, what Paul had said in this particular context is that as a child, an adopted heir is under the tutelage of someone called a uh, a pedagogo, a pedagogue. And this is a slave whose responsibility it was to train the young child until he reaches the age of of adulthood, the age of maturity, at which point he goes through a formal ceremony and he's recognized as an adult son. But when he is young, he's treated like a slave, even though he is the heir. And so the analogy that Paul was using in Galatians 4 is that in the Old Testament, it's like the the young child in the, in the uh, Roman system who is under a pedagogue who is training through a certain set of standards, but then when you reach adulthood, equivalent to the church age believer, then there is a different uh, may be similar in many ways but a different set of standards and responsibilities because now you're treated with as an adult child you have a completed canon of scripture the indwelling and filling of God the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit, things of this nature so the emphasis then uh, and the background of this is on um, is on the ...discipline that God brings into our life as part of that training within the uh, within the household. Okay, let's start the doctrine of adoption. First point, the basic problem we have is that is that of natural birth. Every human being is born into the family of Adam. We all trace our lineage back through Noah and ultimately to Adam... ...so that there is a unity in the human race... That's why Jesus, as the Messiah, has to become a human is so that he is connected physiologically, biologically to the rest of the human race. And therefore, he can die as a substitute for the human race. An angel couldn't do it. God couldn't create some other creature to take on the sin penalty. The substitute has to be of like kind. This goes back to various analogies that you see in the Old Testament. For example, the kinsman redeemer, the goel—that's the background for understanding uh, understanding the Book of Ruth. So the problem of natural birth is we're all, all uh, born spiritually dead. First Corinthians fifteen twenty-two: For as in Adam all die, but in Christ all shall be made alive. Now the second point is that because of Adam's original sin. Every human being is born physically alive and spiritually dead. This affects every single human being. We're born uh, physically alive, spiritually dead. This is seen in Ephesians two one. And although you are born dead in your trespasses and sins, we're born that way. Now, that doesn't mean we're all evil, but that means that because of the sin nature, there is is the... um, That trend of the sin nature, we're spiritually dead, we're separated from God. That doesn't mean we're going to do things as bad as we can do them, but it does mean that we are oriented that way. We can choose to do good as well as to do bad, but none of that is a good that would bring credit with God because the fact is that we are born spiritually dead. A spiritually dead person can't do anything to gain God's merit or gain God's favor. So point three is where every human being is born alive in one sense, but they're dead in another sense. They are like the living dead. They're walking around. They're breathing. They're talking. They have a semblance of life. They're happy, joyful. But the real uh, essence of their relationship with God, going back to how God created Adam initially, has been uh, defaced because of sin, and there has to be a correction. Now we call that spiritual death. That the, they're born without this component, this element in their makeup, that we call the uh, the human uh, human nature, uh, the uh, uh, human spirit that has a relationship to God, and that's lost with Adam's sin. So there has to be a recovery of that, and that's what is meant by spiritual rebirth. Now there is a this is clearly taught in the Old Testament and was understood as an issue in the Old Testament. Ezekiel thirty six, uh, twenty-four to twenty-seven is the key passage for that. And this is another one of those New Covenant passages. The primary passage for the New Covenant was Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 to 34. But there are v- several other passages that are similar and that uh, while they don't use the word New Covenant, they expand that idea and are related to the New Covenant. Uh, Ezekiel 36, 24, and 25, God is talking to Israel, and he says, For I will take you future... And this will take place at the uh, end of the tribulation, the beginning of the kingdom. I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. This is that restoration of of Israel to the land when they are spiritually regenerate when the Messiah comes. And what happens at that time? See, I believe they're already individually regenerate, but as a nation they're not. Ezekiel thirty six twenty five, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. It is a national cleansing that takes place. I will sprinkle clean water on you, you will you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols, that is, from all of their sin. There is a uh uh this is the national cleansing, national forgiveness. Then verse twenty six says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart And put a new spirit within you. This is a picture of a national uh, regeneration, recognizing that there is something missing before that has to be added in terms of the spiritual regeneration of the nation. So I'll give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe uh, my ordinances. So this then becomes a, an Old Testament recognition of a need for a spiritual change from being from death to life, from being spir, uh, spiritually unclean to spiritually clean. This is the background for understanding what Jesus says to Nicodemus, in the third chapter of John, when Jesus came to Nicodemus and Nicodemus asked Jesus, well, what must, what, what, what must we do to be born again? Uh, Jesus answered and uh, said to him, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus said, well, wait a minute, born again, does that mean I have to go back into my mother's womb and uh, go through that process all over again? And in verse 5 and 6, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in that chapter. And when Nicodemus, in the next next couple of uh, verses, Nicodemus is still confused. And Jesus said, how can you be being a teacher of the Jews? How can you not understand this? And the implication is that Nicodemus ought to understand this. Well, where would Nicodemus get the idea of being born uh, of a rebirth from water in the spirit? Well, he must have gotten that from some place like Ezekiel thirty six thirty six, twenty six and twenty seven where we have, notice where there's this picture of cleansing that takes place. In, and in the broader context of Ezekiel chapter 36, God's going to wash them with water and cleanse them, and he's going to give them a new heart and new spirit, remove the heart of stone and replace it with the heart of flesh. So that's the location for understanding the background of what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in John 3, uh, 5 through 6. And so this, uh, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there's this emphasis on the need for a Inner cleansing and a new birth. That man is born spiritually dead and must be spiritually alive. Now, what we see in the New Testament is that this new birth is based on accepting Christ. We have passages such as John uh, one twelve. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God. So, becoming a child of God is based on accepting or receiving uh, Jesus as Messiah. Galatians three twenty six. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, so the way to become a, and to enter into the family of God is by faith in Christ Jesus. Another verse that we could add to this would be titus three five uh, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the of the Holy Spirit, tying regeneration to uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in that verse, and it's not by works of righteousness which we have done. Then in point six, every believer is in the family of God at the instant of belief in Christ. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. So the first statement is, now we are children of God. At the instant of salvation, it's clear you become a child of God. Now the very statement here is that now we are children of God. That implies that there was a time when we weren't children of God. And there are many people since the rise of uh, theological liberalism in the 19th century believe that everybody is born a child of God. Everybody's a child of God. Now, I never heard that growing up. I was never taught that growing up. And when I was in my first church, I <clears throat> was teaching this, and I got a, a lot of pushback from people who had come out of some liberal denominations, and they said, but, but isn't everybody a child of God? So I had to stop and take the time to go back and go through these verses, as well as verses like... Um, In John uh, chapter 11, when Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and says, Well, you are your father, the devil, because you are a liar. And that, that we're not born children of God by physical birth. We're born children of God only by spiritual birth and trusting in him. So spiritual birth or regeneration refers to the rebirth, the family, the placing in the family of God. It comes under the term adoption. So adoption is the term then that is used to describe the admission of the believer into the family of God and his legal relationship to God. So it describes the, his admission into the family of God, and it's distinct from regeneration. Regeneration describes the rebirth, adoption describes the uh, act of being placed into the family now under point eight adoption then is a legal metaphor that Paul uses and is as a uh, to describe this relationship so it's looking at the believer's new relationship not in terms of his uh, uh, his new n- nature and the new birth but which which is real but in terms of a legal metaphor now We stop and we go back all the way to Genesis chapter 2. The whole relationship that man has with God is always defined in legal terms. God establishes contracts with man. These are known as covenants. And so God always functions on the basis of these legal uh, concepts. So we have ideas like uh, imputation and uh, righteous justification. All of these are based on legal concepts. So adoption is another way of describing the relationship of the believer in terms of a legal metaphor. Now, as I indicated earlier in the introduction, there are two forms of adoption that were known in the ancient world. So if you are living anywhere within the Roman Empire, you would have a familiarity with either Greek adoption or Roman adoption. Greek adoption would have, of course, dominated in the Eastern Empire and Roman adoption in the Western Empire, but both uh, were culturally uh, present and people would have been culturally aware of them. In Greek adoption, the emphasis is on family relationship. In Greek adoption, the emphasis is on family uh, relationship. So a man during his life or by a will after his death could adopt any male citizen into the privileges of his own family, but with the invariable condition that the adopted son would accept the legal obligation and religious duties of a real son. And when Paul is emphasizing these family aspects of adoption, that would include inheritance, he has the Greek custom in mind. Now, Paul didn't write Hebrews, but whoever did write Hebrews understands this same thing, and he's using adoption and sonship here even though he doesn't use the word adoption he's using the concept of sonship and training in this uh, in this kind of familial way because it's going to be connected in this and it's been connected in this passage to inheritance now, on the Roman side, the Roman custom was much more demanding. Roman law emphasized the, the very harsh and severe authority of the father over the son. It was called the patria potestas, the power of the father. He, has, he, he virtually rules the son as, almost as a slave owner would rule a slave. And the son was little better than a slave until he reached the age of adulthood. And the reason w- for this was to protect and preserve the aristocracy in Rome and to preserve the inheritance of the father as it's being passed on to the son. So depending on what the context is, Paul is, is usually uh, alluding to either the Greek concept to indicate a more intimate family relationship or uses the Roman, some Roman ideas in order to emphasize the uh, legal uh, aspect. Now, in the process of adoption, it was initiated by a legal procedure that involved a ceremonial purchase. If the new son was a slave, which is, remember there's a scene in Ben-Hur after he is, if you've seen the film, some of you may not have seen that for a long time, Charlton Heston is arrested and, and he sold his slavery and he goes into the galley, uh, in the, as a slave in a galley ship and there's this huge battle and he saves the life of the, uh, one of the commanders and so he's taken back to Rome and he is formally adopted as, as the heir of Quirinius. So this is uh, this. That's the that's the same idea that a slave could be adopted. Now, if the slave is adopted as a son, then an, an actual purchase price is paid for his freedom. Now, the word that you ought to be hearing, thinking of, when you hear the word purchase price, is redemption. And so you have the idea of redemption pays the price to buy the freedom of the slave prior to the adoption. If the um, uh, if, the son, if the man was not a slave, then a, uh, a symbolic purchase price was paid uh, to uh, indicate his his purchase uh, and his freedom. So this is uh, this is used in a way to depict the uh, redemption price that's paid for uh, for the, to free the slave. Roman adoption emphasizes more inheritance rather than blood relationship, and applies to both the blood son as well as the as an unrelated heir. So the even the physical son has certain uh, legal aspects were invoked in order to secure the passing on of the inheritance. Now in the Roman system, the uh, under point 12, for the first 14 years, a son is put under a slave called the pedagogue. This is the term that Paul used in Galatians to refer to the role of the uh, Mosaic law. It's the, a slave who is a tutor who is responsible for training and instilling discipline into the uh, young child. And for training him, teaching him all that he needs to learn, so that he can function as a responsible uh, adult, as the uh, heir within within the family. So, during under point thir- um, under point twelve, the son had little uh, little ri- more rights than a slave for the first fourteen years. Paul uses that as an analogy to the to the uh, to the role of uh, Israel under the Mosaic Law. Prior to Christ, Uh, during his youth, he he would wear a toga of youth, which would indicate his position. So it was obvious to all that he was in a position of training. And when he turned fourteen, then there's a family ceremony where the boy is designated as an adult. And under point fifteen, in that adoption ceremony, the father would uh, release the toga of youth from the shoulders of the boy. The father would take off his cloak then which is the toga virilis, and wraps it around the new son, and this is an indication that he is being adopted into the family. So that would be an analogy to the imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer. So you have an analogy with redemption, that the redemption price is paid first, Then there is the imputation of righteousness depicted in putting the robe of the toga virilis around the adopted son. And then the father announces, my son, you have now been adopted into the family. So in terms of the legal procedure, then what happens is there's, we'd say there's belief in Christ. Then there is uh then there is the imputation of righteousness the declaration of our justification um our regeneration and then the adoption into the uh, royal family of god now with in the roman custom adoption under point 17 the adoption meant that the boy was now an adult with all the rights and privileges of an adult and could enter into military service or manage his own finances get married vote in the republic uh, things of that nature. So he gets to that point where he can function with those adult privileges. Why? Because he has been trained by the pedagogue that has been hired by the father to train, to discipline, to prepare the young child to function as an adult. That is the background for what we're reading here uh, in these verses, that uh that discipline, that paiduo, that's the word for chastening in Hebrews twelve eleven. Now no chastening or no discipline or training seems joyful for the present, but it's painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, and that second word for train again emphasizes uh that 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 discipline. You all hear that thunder? I think we'll close in prayer. Remember the last time we got stuck here and got flooded in? We were here till midnight. Let's uh, bow our heads and close in prayer and uh, leave before we get flooded in. Father, we're thankful for this time that we've had to study your word this evening and pray that you'd encourage us because we know that you are in control and you are the one who trains us. Father, we pray that you would keep us safe on the road tonight, that we'll be able to get home without any problems from the weather. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.